Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches. And MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Okay, so I'm here with Bart Yasso, who has been coined the mayor of running, which is, you know, quite, quite uh, an amazing title to hold. And he's been with Runner's World Magazine for since 1987. Bart, say hello to the audience. Hey, hey, Richard. First off, thanks for having me. And yes, hello, everyone. This is Bart Yasso. Chief Running Officer of Runner's World in my crazy office at the Runner's World headquarters. <laughs> so, Bart, you know, let's start with that. How in the hell do you get the term, um, the, you know, the Chief Running Officer? What, what, is that, what does that entail? Yeah, Richard, I get that a lot. What, what does the, the Chief Running Officer do, or how do you get a title like Chief Running Officer? And, you know, I've been at Runner's World 28 years, and I've been in involved in the endurance world for 38 years, and uh, I believe, if my memory serves me well, that uh, when I got the title Chief Running Officer, I was inducted into the Running USA Hall of Champions, and when I came back from that event, they said, okay, we've got to give this guy a new title, and uh, they came out with Chief Running Officer, and I've been the Chief Running Officer ever since, so I love my title. But exactly what I do, uh, so, you know, if someone has a uh, title of editor-in-chief or CEO or CFO, you know, you obviously know what they do. Chief running officer is pretty big. What ha- what happened with a great title like chief running officer, it allows me to work on all facets of every runner's world product we have, whether it's a website, social media, the magazine, uh, videos, you name it, uh, events, I'm involved in it. So it's it's been a fun journey, and I physically, personally go to a lot of events. About forty to forty-two weekends out of the year, I'm at a running event somewhere around the world. Mostly domestic in the U.S., but uh, you know, I do a couple international trips every year. Well, you know, full disclosure, that's how we met. I I actually met you on one of these journeys where you participated on the uh, the Spartan Cruise this past month. And uh, it was it was good to finally get a chance to put a face on the name and get a chance to meet you. And, you know, I, I tell you, I'm going to be very honest with you. And if anybody that knows me knows that if it comes in my head, it comes out my mouth. Uh, I wasn't sure whether I was going to like you. <laughs> you know, and there you were sidled up with some of my favorite people. I mean, uh, I love Charlie Engel. And, you know, you you and Charlie are very friendly. And um, uh, Mike Wardian, you know, you're very friendly with him. And and just kind of, as soon as I met you, I knew this is an easy guy to get along with, and whatever uh, resistance I had to you, it fell away immediately. And I, I thought, you know, this is a good guy. So uh, glad to have met you. Hey, hey same here, Richard. Yeah. Uh, same, feeling is mutual. We have a lot of mutual friends, and uh, a lot of our, our mutual friends are people I admire greatly. And, uh, you know, so it was fun to make the connection on that first ever Spartan Cruise. Was that a crazy event or what? You know, it was pretty neat. Uh, you know, I loved it that the fact that we were, so before you actually get to the event, we had this captive audience on this ship heading from Miami to the Bahamas to do the 
the the Spartan race. So it's kind of fun. You get to know people, get the vibe of people. I was certainly an elderly person on this cruise uh, and in these Spartan races, which, you know, it's cool by me. In a, a couple months, I'll be 60. And, uh, you know, that Spartan race, Spartan cruise was, uh, was a pretty young demographic. Let, let me give you some good news, Bart. Yeah, what's that, Richard? I'm older than you. Oh, that's good to hear. There's <laughs> one older than me out there. I like that. I got to tell you, I, I was the oldest, fattest, least shaped person on that ship. <laughs> I like that. And that's never happened to me. You know, I mean, I've been, you know, I've been in circles of pretty fit people before. Uh, but generally, it never happens on a cruise ship because usually you get on a cruise ship, half the people that are on a cruise ship are very elderly and they're beat down and, you yeah. know, uh, it's just really kind of a different type of thing. But um, clearly, I was the guy that time. So, uh, uh, but I'm cool with that, too. So, for oh, every, but everyone loved you and they loved the programs you were doing and that's what it's all about. But, yeah, it was a pretty fit group of people and uh you know i was just happy to be part of it it was fun talking to this group and uh you know it's spartan races are not easy i mean it's an endurance event it was a lot of fun well i gotta tell you i am absolutely fascinated with the whole thing because uh, I, i'm basically a voyeur and a, and a student of the art of endurance training just to being able to um you know work with these guys and you know i coach a few of them well, more than a few of them, but I, I coach a few of the pros. And I just, to me, it's the new frontier. It's just something new to play with. Yeah, I agree with you, Richard, because, uh, you know, I remember being up in the, working out on the treadmills, and when our, our dear friend Michael Wardian was doing his 50K runs on the treadmills, you know, these guys were paying attention to it, but they were really into, like, running fast on a treadmill and then doing 30 burpees and then running fast on a treadmill and then doing 100 push-ups and then running fast on the treadmill and doing the bear crawl, you know, for five minutes or something like that. It was interesting to see that kind of training. It's, it seems to be that uh, the energy and the enthusiasm is endless. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's just like they they just can't get enough of any of it. You know, they just want to be... They want to be challenged, and they want to overcome these obstacles, uh, literally speaking. And I, th I just think it's really, really fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. And it is different. You know, I was part of the triathlon world when it really took off. I did my first triathlon, I believe it was 1983. In fact, yeah, for sure it was 1983 when it was in its infancy. And, uh, you know, we were a rare breed at that time, of course. Where, where was your race? Uh, I did what was called the Emmaus Triathlon. We swam a mile, biked 30, and ran 10. Uh, you know, and uh, man, I, what I really loved back then is very few of us actually trained like triathletes. We were a lot of runners that just would borrow a bike and go to the local pool and swim for two days and say, okay, we're ready for the triathlon. Oh, yeah. And I, when I really liked the race, I got serious about it and, uh, you know, Put in the cycling miles and the swimming miles to do it correctly. But that first one was really, uh, you know, really fun because, man, you swam a mile and you're like, wow, that's a long way. That's not like laps in a local pool. But it was yeah. yeah, like you. Like you, I come back from, from those days as well. I, I think I did my first long course triathlon in 81. And at the time, I was living on the island of Maui. Me and a, and a guy that owned a local bike shop, uh, put on an event, so the the, race, the first race I did was we, we directed it, uh, we actually co-directed it, and then we did a couple years worth of those races on the island and got some really good sponsors. And because it's such a uh, a destination, people everybody wants to go to Maui, right? So yes. to go there and actually participate in one of these events was was easy to get people to come. And then ended up doing the Kawhi Loves You Triathlon in 84, which we I co-directed and produced with Larry King, not like the Larry King from, from uh, uh, journalism, but Larry King, who was world team tennis and the husband of Billie Jean King. Oh, wow. So we put on the first pro race on the island of Kauai in 1984. And so I was really, really infected by that sport back then. And I got to tell you, this, this obstacle thing, is kind of like that to me right now. I got the same kind of vibe, same kind of bug right now with this as I had back then. But like you suggested, 
there was no rhyme or reason for how to approach that sport back then. Everybody just kind of came from somewhere else and kind of threw the three things together as best they could. Yeah, oh, you're absolutely right. And most people came from a running background. We have a big cycling community in this uh, eastern Pennsylvania where I'm located because we have a velodrome. And a few of the cyclists, you know, got into the triathlon world. And, uh, you know, occasionally you meet a few swimmers that come out of that swimming world and get into the triathlon. But the majority, uh, you know, especially back in the 80s, came out of the running segment and then moved over into the triathlon world. Right. And like you suggested, you know, they borrow a bike. You know, back then there wasn't even there wasn't even any uh, rules that would require you to wear a helmet. Uh, I'm, I've got video, by the way, that's probably going to become historical reference. In that, in uh, the guys were racing with leather bonnets. Remember those leather bonnets? Yeah, we used that to... was big on the velodrome here years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, guys wearing wool socks and toe toe cages. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! It was that was old school. Pictures on the down to the old yeah. That was hey, we thought that was the rage. <laughs> it, it was. Yeah, it was. It was the rage at the time. So um, I got a couple of questions for you, but I, I, I I'm definitely going to lead into some more technical things. But I, I got a couple of questions for you. Yep. Uh, first of all, I I've, I've I've found that you've pretty much well you've you've done races on all seven continents and. You've pretty much done races everywhere there are races. Yeah, I literally have traveled the world. And, uh, you know, use running as that vehicle to to get me to all these places and, uh, you know, experience different cultures. And, uh, you know, I'm just fascinated by culture and animals, and I've taken all that. But usually there's a race that gets me to Mount Everest or Kilimanjaro or the Arctic Circle or Antarctica. So, So the question, I guess, is... Of you know this this is very pointed now, on all the races that you've you've done, what is your favorite race, not marathon yeah. favorite race? So that, yeah, that's a question. You know, it's changed over the years because I've been getting that question for all my years at Runners World. But you know, after two thousand and ten, I answer this question the same ever since, and it's the Comrades Marathon in South Africa. It's the oldest ultra in the world, the largest ultra in the world. And it's a, it's a running race to change the physical makeup of a country. And you cannot say that very often, to think that a running race can change the physical makeup of a country. But during those tough apartheid years in South Africa, the only time a black South African citizen was revered at a very high level was during Comrades. Uh, because they could win Comrades, they could finish in the top ten, and Comrades was televised live on every TV station in South Africa. In all those tough apartheid years, uh, they did not want any of the black citizens to get positive coverage. You know, they were trying to make it all negative, but they couldn't suppress it because it was live on TV, a black Zulu South African being in front of 20,000 runners in the Comrades Marathon, one of those 56 hilly miles in a beautiful, beautiful setting in South Africa. So, you know, a lot of the South Africans have always told me that they really feel that it was a barometer, a pushing point on the abolishment of apartheid, that certainly apartheid was going to be abolished, but that Comrades could have played a small role in that. And to think that a running race could have that much of an effect on something that changed the world let alone change the physical makeup of South Africa. It's pretty pretty special to see, and that's why I really wanted to, to run Comrades. I was a decent runner at 50 miles. My personal best at 50 miles is right around, uh, I didn't break six hours. I was six hours and one minute. Wow. But that's like 7.20 per mile pace for, for 50 miles. So I was, you know, I could do it. I was. That's not, you know, the best run six around six-minute pace, the best in the world. But I was uh, right around, right, a little over that seven-minute pace. So I well, was, that's still respectable. Yeah, I always wanted to do Comrades after apartheid was abolished, and I actually entered it twice. And this was back in my days when I could run those fast times. And uh, I never made it over there due to health problems. And uh, so I kind of forgot about it. And then uh, eventually when I realized my running career was, you know, fading away, I said, God, i got to get over there and do comrades before I can't physically do it. So I did go over in 2010, uh, which was the best year to do it because it was held 
a week before the World Cup soccer was held in South Africa. So it was, the country was a buzz. Oh, yeah. Comrades was a big deal that happened right before uh, the World Cup soccer. And it's it's an amazing experience to uh, stand at that starting line, be, around, be surrounded by these black Zulu South Africans to think that prior to the early 70s, they weren't even allowed to run the race. And then, of course, when they started to run the race, and they, the only reason they were allowed to run the race because the white athletes said, if you don't allow the black citizens to run, we're not going to run. If we don't, you don't have a race. So kind of right away changed how the race was, uh, you know, physically handled. So then, you know, again, the black South Africans have started winning and placing. And, uh, you know, it really is amazing to stand at that starting line and look out and see the physical makeup of the country. That's what makes up the field in, in, in comrades these days. So that, that's pretty interesting. Now, so I guess that almost maybe answers my, my next question, which was, what was your favorite country to race in? Yeah, you know, I would actually say uh, Tanzania over South Africa, uh, just because uh, I'm a big animal lover, and I've done a lot of runs in uh, the Serengeti, base of Kilimanjaro, actually on Kilimanjaro. And those runs are etched in my mind as my most favorite runs. Uh, running in the Norangoro Crater in Tanzania and uh, running in the Serengeti. There's a little, there's a, a different feeling when you go out for a run when you're in an area that is, you know, you went out that afternoon and through your binoculars saw 20 or 30 lions. Oh, wow. Later that evening, you're going out for a run. Not exactly where you saw those lions, but, but in the Serengeti. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it would cause you to pause, huh? Since we're talking about that, I read somewhere that uh, you got chased by a rhinoceros. Yeah, that was in Nepal. That is, uh, yeah, I got this classic photo of uh, two runners, one of them is myself and this guy, Jim Crosswhite, and we're running down this trail and meet a rhino. Uh, but I don't have pictures of the rhino we got chased by because that was later that night. We went for a run at sunset and... Uh, the problem was we were in this tall grass, run, running on this beautiful trail along the Nari River. But uh, when we got chased by the rhino, we could hear the animal, could hear the, the tall grass thrashing in the ground, shaking. This animal was moving so fast and such a big animal, but we couldn't see the animal. So we didn't know if he was right next to us or in front of us or behind us. But uh, we were running, uh, an all-out running. Uh, to try to get away, it was uh, it was interesting. And as soon as the sound dissipated, then we knew we were safe. But we really didn't know if we were running the correct direction or what we were doing right. And we were just trying to get to some type of trees to get behind that would help us out. But there was nothing but this tall grass that was about uh, six feet high. So it was tough to sight on anything. But yeah, it was pretty. I remember that run very, very well. So the, these animals are aggressive? That They'll chase you, huh? Yeah, I don't know if they're that aggressive or just more protective. You know, if we could have come along, uh, you know, got into their turf right at sunset where they were probably trying to bed down. And uh, I think it was more of a territorial thing. And it was probably a mistake on our part, obviously. Wow. I don't think they really want to. But the place we were in, Chitwan Park, is a reserve for tiger and rhinoceros. So the rhinoceros feel very safe there, and we were... I think we just, uh, you know, we're in that wrong place at the wrong time kind of deal. And uh, shipped us. I don't know if it was one or two animals that were actually chasing us, but it was uh, a thundering noise is still uh, etched in my 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 mind. I can uh, I can remember that feeling that ground shaking and hearing that noise, knowing that rhino uh, was close by. So whatever the theme of the training was for the day, it completely converted to speed workout, right? Uh, you're not kidding. That was, uh, I, I, I always use that line. I was running with this guy, Jim, and I knew I was faster than Jim, so I just was trying to outrun Jim. Yeah. I, I was going the right direction. I said, Jim, I just got to stay in front of you, and the rhino's going to kill you, and I'll be fine. And Perfect. That was, I've took, heard that before about sharks in the water, but I guess that's appropriate, too. Yeah, you got it, Richard. Wow. So uh, what's, your, what's your favorite marathon? Favorite marathon? Uh you know, I'd have to say Rome, in Rome, Italy. Uh, you know, Rome Marathon really takes in the physical makeup of the city. 
and it takes you by all the historic sites, the Vatican, Trevi Fountain, Spanish Steps, the Tiber. I mean, you really get to see everything. You go through these piazzas, and, you know, it's just amazing. Start at the Colosseum, finish running down the Appian Way, and, uh, you know, it's pretty special. And that's what I love about races that really take in every historic site or as many historic sites as you can. In a city like Rome, which has a lot of historic sites, uh, the Rome Marathon does a really good job. And starting a race at the Colosseum, that's, uh, that has a pretty cool, pretty cool setting to, uh, you know, you're ready to, you know, and they say one minute to go, and you kind of just glance over, and the Colosseum's right there. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. Yeah, I, I love Rome. Or a Rome race, and then the Appian Way, that the finish coming into the Appian Way is, you know, it's just so historic. It just brings chills to you when you think about it. And I, whenever I do a race, you know, I always study, you know, the country, the culture, the course, you know, the historic things we were run by. And, you know, when you read about all this stuff and then you're actually physically doing it, it's, I would put Rome at the top for me. I've seen references to, but I haven't got up to speed, but there's a lot of references to your uh, uh, having some illnesses that kind of got in the way of your training. Is that something you care to share? or? Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I don't talk about my Lyme disease a lot because I don't, I don't want it to be a negative thing, and, I, and I'm, all, I'm always out there, you know, uh, pushing people to the next level and trying to get their running to the next level and getting them to run around the world and you know, move from the 5K up to the half marathon and the mar- half marathon up to the marathon and marathoners up to the ultras. So, uh, you know, but I, you know, I can't deny it. I mean, I really had some physical problems. Uh, Lyme disease got me twice, and the second time I was very, very sick in, in the hospital for quite a while. And it did a lot of physical damage to my body, uh, a lot of neurological problems, and uh, it slowed me down tremendously. And then... In 2002, I was actually actually got back to running pretty well. I did a couple ultras out in California, and you know, I was in my late 40s, and I was still like placing second overall in these 50Ks. And I was like, "Yeah, I can still do this stuff. I got to take this stuff seriously." And uh, you know, I went out for a run in 2002, and man, I ended up in the emergency room. And when I came out of that emergency room, I've never been able to run again like I used to run. I mean, I had uh, I don't know exactly what went on that day. I had all these uh, heart rate problems, accelerated heart rate, and when I was in the emergency room, they couldn't get my heart rate down. And, uh, you know, I get all these tests and all this stuff, and, you know, I never really get something conclusive what happened. But, you know, I've never been the same since that day. So I, I still run, but, you know, I run very, what I call sparingly. I, I want to be a runner for life, so I kind of parcel out the miles I have left in my body to last for a couple of years. So I really, uh, you know, I run very infrequent. infrequent. Uh, I commute on my bike as much as I can when the weather works. We have another tough winter here in Pennsylvania, so it's been tough to commute. But the weather's changing, so i got to get back on. Uh, I just got a beautiful nine-mile uh, ride to work from my house, and it's just a perfect way to start the day and end the day going home. Oh, cool. Try to, you know, and I can alter that course, make it a little bit longer if it's a nice day. Right. I, you know, I, and I go to the gym and do a little 30-minute workout here and there. So I do the best I can to stay in shape. But, you know, I phys- just physically can't run. If I do, I just get so sick I end up in the hospital, and that's not uh, what the sport is all about. So. Well, I saw you running on the ship. So yeah. I imagine that you, you just kind of uh, manage to keep it down a bit, don't, don't overdo it. Yep. Yeah, I, t- I just listen to my body, and, you know, my body said, sends me these signals to back off. I really do. I, I think I pushed myself a little bit in that Spartan race just because, uh, you know, I wanted to finish it in a respectable time. <laughs> but I really, the races I do these days, I really don't push it. I kind of run with people. I try to find a group of people that are maybe running their first half marathon and are going to run, you know, like two and a half hours, and I'll run with them just to kind of be around them and experience what's, you know, how running is changing them and you can actually physically be part of that, which is kind of fun. So, I, you know, I don't have those competitive 
you know, that uh, I don't look at running as a competitive thing anymore, and, and haven't since that uh, since I came out of that hospital in 2002. But I golf competitively. I uh. absolutely love golf, and uh, when I play with my buddies, we, I'm not a gambler. I don't bet on golf, but uh, but we challenge each other, and I, I really love that. So I can get that little competitive vibe going uh, if I really want to on the golf course. But I, I keep it at check on the on the bike and when I'm running. Well, while we're sharing scars, I'm going to share with you something I've never uh, discussed online before. I had uh, I had an issue come up, I think it's about 12, 14 years ago now, where I ran for a long time with uh, back pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just figured, well, I'm a big guy. You know, I, I ran a Big Sur Marathon. I think I ran about a 350, something like that. And, and uh, you know, I, I always would end up with a lot of back pain and could never quite get to the to the root of it, couldn't figure out what, what the problem was. I just assumed that it was, you know, textbook, L4, L5 type of thing. And and I was always resistant to seeing uh, an orthopedic surgeon because you see them when you want to be cut, and I didn't want to be cut, so I just avoided that. And, you know, years and years and years go by and got threatened by some of these orthopods saying that if I didn't do something that they'd need to, uh, to you know, to get in there and cut me and whatever. And and I just always avoided it and was able to get through it and get through it, get through it. And I was doing tries and I was doing races and, and I always managed to pull it through. And then it got to a place where I was having a lot of problem, like picking up my leg. <laughs> and uh, so it, it got to a place where I just didn't run anymore. And, and then it got to a place where I couldn't ride my bike, where I'd go out for a, you know, I'd go out for a traditional 50-mile bike ride and I'd get about 25 miles away and end up having to come back with one leg because the other leg wasn't working. And then, uh, you know, so I kind of, I, I just started curtailing all this work over and over and over again and slowed everything down. And, and then ve- eventually uh, I got sick of that and went and tried to do some investigations to figure out what it was. It turned out I had this arterial venous malformation in my thoracic spinal cord, which was not, all, was not about my low back at all. It was, I was actually having a blood supply problem in my spinal cord. First, they thought I had Lou Gehrig's disease, and they, they thought, you know, uh, and I went through a long period where I thought, this is it, I got a brain tumor, I'm done. And then they finally said, okay, we, we're going to send you to UCLA Medical, and you're going to have a checkout. And anyway, so I, I don't want to wear this out, but what ended up happening is I had surgery on my spinal cord, and so I've got some residual damage on my left side uh, in the nerves. Mm-hmm. So I still run, and I, you know, I actually over the last seven or eight years, I've run more than I had the seven or eight years prior to that and been able to get out and run for, you know, as much as three hours at a stint. It's not as pretty as I'd like it to be, but I can do it. And, and to this day, I get up six days a week with a group we train. I make an attempt every single day. And some days it goes well, some days it doesn't go so well. For example, on Saturday, I had a pretty decent run. I ran about seven miles and, and I felt pretty good. This morning it wasn't so great, but I always get up and I always, you know, get ready to run and, I, you know, I just, you know, throw, throw the dice out there and see how they're going to roll and, and, and go with it. But in my work, you know, my day-to-day, I'm coaching athletes, I'm, I'm training athletes how to run with good form. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in it. So now right. I, I basically have become a voyeur. And, uh, but I think it's good because it's, it, I think that's probably where I was destined to be anyway and uh, I had my fun with it and, uh, like you, I you know I'm not likely to be uh, discouraged, and you know I just every day I, I, I tell people every day above ground's a good day, right? Yeah, I totally agree, Richard. And what I do, I, I absolutely love it. You know, I feel very lucky. You know, when I go to these races every weekend, a lot of the races have half marathons or a 5K, and I can just I can cover that distance every once in a while. I'm just you know, as long as I don't push it, I feel all right and. You know, it's not a bad thing. I mean, you, you, you're you listening to your body and doing what your body allows you to do. And that is that is the best advice we can give anybody. Right. To, so uh, let's talk about marathon training for a second. Now, let's talk about it for more than a second. Yeah. Um, so I come across the Yasso 800. And, yeah. you know, maybe I'm new. <laughs> maybe I'm new in certain circles, but I, I had never seen it. And I, I, I looked into it, and I'm a student of the art. Uh, and so I was paying attention to it. And then I was paying attention to some of the commentary you've gotten. I know you've gotten a lot of criticism for it. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, but so 
Tell me how this came about for you. Was it just kismet? You just kind of identified that by doing these 800s, it started to show some correlation to your ability to to finish a marathon, what the time would be? exactly right, Richard. I mean, I had no clue. For some reason, I liked that workout, 10 times 800, 400-meter recovery. For some reason, in 1978, when I met this guy, Carmen Hagel, he said, when you go to the track, you do five miles worth of hard stuff and, you know, little bit of jogging in between, you know, that's what he said to me. And he said, don't go to the track if you're not going to do at least five miles of, you know, five times a mile, ten times 800 or some kind of ladder workout, whatever, you know, I would do. So I always listened to him, you know, five times one mile, ten times 800, whatever the workout was. And so I just remember doing that workout, the ten times 800 before my first marathon, which was over 35 years ago. And, uh, and then I Second marathon, third marathon, I just remember that workout gave me confidence, so I went and did it, you know, again and again, and and then I found this correlation that what I was averaging in the 800s, I would finish the marathon. Of course, the 800s in minutes and seconds equaled the marathon in hours and minutes, but that correlation was there. I could do 10 times 800 and 240, I could run a 240 marathon. So for the people that are trying to figure out what we're talking about, in essence, what you do is you, you run an 800, and whatever the time is that you would run the 800, you'd equal that in recovery time. You do that 10 times, and whatever the aggregate number is, is pretty close to what your finish time would be in the marathon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and, and, and it was exact for me. And, uh, you know, and then Amby Burfoot found out about it. Amby Burfoot uh, was the executive Right. Runner's World for many, many years, and a gentleman who won the Boston Marathon, and a guy who knows a little bit about running. He was the one that, he liked the simplicity of the workout, he thought people in, you know, do a piece in Runner's World, everyone would like it, and so he did it, uh, he, Amby actually pulled the piece together, interviewing me, and uh, and then he also named them after me without me knowing it, and, uh, he, and he only did that because I have an unusual last name, if I was Joe Smith. <laughs> It wouldn't be a thing called Smith 800s, but uh, he said this thing is going to catch on. Runners are going to like it. And then I uh, was in the in Runners World in 1993, and I thought, you know, when the magazine came out, people would talk about it for a month and maybe try it, and then it would just disappear. But then this thing came around called the internet, and uh, and then the Yasuo 800s just took off. And I can't believe how much is out there if you Google Yasuo 800s. But, you know, people always send, they'll send me a link, they'll go, Bart, they're bashing Yasuo 800s on this link, you better go on here. And I go, I don't have to go on there. I've only ever said Yasuo 800s worked for me. I never said they worked for anybody else in the world. I, I have proof that they worked for me. I have those old training logs that I wrote all this stuff down. But I never said they worked for anyone. It's not based on science. It's not, you know... Uh, just a fun correlation, but there are a lot of people it does work for, so it's kind of fun. Well, that, that's interesting, uh, and I, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, at the end of the day, when you get something out there in the world, then you're going to be exposed to the potential ridicule. You know, people are going to want to take a shot at you, especially if you're if you if you were to come off of saying that you know this works for everybody, then yeah. then everybody's going to try to find a way to find a hole in it. I worked, and you probably don't even know it because uh, my my training system is not nearly as famous as yours so far. So far, yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, you know, I've spent the past 20 years doing clinical analysis of athletes and from pretty much all walks of life. From uh, I used to work with hockey players. I work with boxers, I work with runners, triathletes, predominantly triathletes in the early years. And, you know, I've honed my, my trade to exclusively running over the past 10 years because it occurred to me that all these folk that I work with have to run. You know, if I just show up at the run, they'll all show up there with me. So I narrowed my focus. Uh, but, you know, I, I draw conclusions in training relative to scientific evidence. Uh, I'm a big believer in heart rate-specific training. Heart rate is information that's coming from your body that's irrefutable. I mean, if your heart rate is rolling out at 175 beats per minute, it's trying to tell you something. And to completely discount what that information is telling you and then look at the yield, how fast you're going, how far you went, how much time you recovered, it doesn't take into account what it, what the expense is. So uh, the book I wrote is called 
the all new My Best Race, which it's basically a heart rate driven training program. And so forever, it seems, uh, I've been really, really involved in heart rate specific training. It seems to come full circle. Now my thing, I, I, I try to tell people that I'm really not just a heart rate guy. I, I look at things in terms of what it costs you to do something and what the effect will be. So it's, it's efficiency and economy. How smoothly you're able to move is going to lower the cost. And so I look at both paradigms. I'm looking at running mechanics, uh, efficiency and movement, and then, of course, trying to lower the cost as best you can. I look at both ends of things. And I know, you know, you and I both are old school. I, I'm going to work, going to wear the hat with you. And so we come up, you know, when there wasn't the technology that there is today. Yeah. And, you know, you go back to guys like Arthur Lydiard and, you know, uh, you know, to this day, there's a, you know, as you know, there's a lot of people that still follow the, the concepts that uh, Lydiard put down way back, going back to Zapotnik and, you know, uh, fartlek training and all, all of these principles that are age old are still very familiar in the running communities these days. You know, I think it's all good. I think it's just a function of information. The more information you gather, the, the easier and better it is. So in your case, you were gathering information. You identified that with the, the amount of work and the amount of recovery you gathered, it, it yielded a particular potential time for, for a race. Yeah, I mean, it was literally tangible information written right in my training log. And when I went back and looked at that, because I would go back and look at data that I wrote down on when I, I, I mostly did it when I had a good race and figured out what really worked. And then occasionally I would do it if I had a bad race and try to figure out what I did wrong. But I really liked to uh, pour through that data when I had a, a really good race and figure out, okay, what did I do in this 16-week period that really led to this performance. Do you wear a heart rate monitor? I don't. And I never did, uh, one, even back, you know, when I was really training seriously. And I wish I did. I mean, I, I, I did a few times, but the beauty of a heart rate monitor is, you know, you tell someone or even tell yourself, okay, today's an easy day. Just go out there, run easy. Some days are easier than others based on you know, lack of sleep or high humidity, so you think you're running easy, but you're not because you didn't get a good night's sleep and it's a really warm, humid day. But that heart rate would have told me, okay, you're running a little bit too fast today. You, know, you need to back off. It meant to be a real easy recovery day. I'll give you a good example, and I'm sure you're familiar because, I mean, you, you know, again, you're the mayor of running, so you you know all the races. I, 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 <laughs> but, I, but uh, the Cottonwood uh, Marathon, which, which is basically a downhill run. Oh, okay, yep. Um, you know, you start off, I, I don't recall exactly what the altitude is, but I think it's in and around 5,000 feet. And it's basically, uh, you know, a, a, it's like tumbling tumbleweeds down this mountain until you, you get to about halfway through the race, and then it starts to flatten out a little bit. But, you know, this downhill running seems pretty easy, but the the altitude's pressing and your heart rates go really high, right? And, and then it and it culminates into a pretty severe consequence about um, three quarters of the way through the race. And yeah. I've had a couple people I know that were actually really good, really talented runners, end up in the back of an EMS truck um, when they got to about you know mile fifteen, mile sixteen. They just basically exploded because. They, they they just had this false sense of what was really going on because they were running so fast. Right. So yeah, I, I I just think that it's it's imperative that you you get the information, especially on how your body's faring relative to just the perception of work. You know, I feel great today. I'm running well today. Uh, and of course that you know not to discount that either, but it's also very important to know how your body's responding to the work you're doing. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Richard. I, I, the people I coach, I tell them that all the time. An easy, you know, because they all want to know what pace they should do on the farlick run, on the long run, on the easy days, recovery days. And, you know, I always tell them, it's, there's no set blueprint. Like, the day changes based on the conditions and based on how you're feeling, based on where you are in the training cycle. You know, you have to be smart enough to know a lot of this stuff. And those are the runners that do that are the ones that really succeed and really, 
you know, become, move on to either be really good runners or they accomplish marathon times or half marathon things that they never thought possible. They really do pay attention to their bodies and they, they use technology to their advantage and not their disadvantage. So when, when you're training your 800s, you know, I'm talking about you now, going back into your history with it, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, early in training, you can accomplish these 800s quicker than you can in the latter part of the of the training. So in other words, maybe the first six repeats that you do are quicker than the last four. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, I well, I would always do a negative split style. I would try to get faster as I, you know, my fastest would be my 8th, ninth, and 10th 800. I always tried to... Uh, you know, improve as I tried to train negative split style, so I would race negative split style. But what would happen is the you know first time I'd go to the track, I'd build up a base and then uh, hit hit the hill to gain some strength, and then I would hit the track when we're in like that uh, seven eight week window prior to the taper for a marathon, and then I would hit the track every week and do. You know, I, don't, I, I did other workouts other than time, times 800, a lot of five times one mile and a lot of ladder type workouts. But uh, but when I did those 800s, you know, when I would do them when I was running 80, 90 miles a week, they were easier to sustain than when I got up to 110, 115 miles a week. And But that but I felt when I was, when you're doing that max mileage uh, and still doing this workout, that's where I really got that benefit. And when I look back at those logs and those where I had those good races, I really felt that I sustained that consistent effort, you know, even when I'm, the mileage got higher. So I, I downloaded a, um, a marathon plan, apparently, that you wrote. It should be yours because it says Bart Yasso's race-tested intermediate marathon. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, it, you know, I'm looking at the way you got this laid, laid out. In essence, it looks like you got an easy day. A relatively hard day, an easy uh, a day off, an easy day, easy day, and then a longer day. So mm-hmm. you, it looks like you did the long, slow distances on the end of the week. Yeah, and then you just basically are building time, or excuse me, volume, and then a little bit of regression. And but you know, every few weeks you take a little bit of a break on the volume, and then you then you start to pack it back on again. Yeah. And it looks like you're topping out at about 48 miles of total volume. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like it's uh, my, uh, week 14. And this is a 16-week program. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm assuming that 16 weeks is uh, relegated to, again, someone that's run a marathon before. This isn't going to be a new thing for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and someone that already has a good base when they start out. Some people see a 16-week program and think, okay, I... Just started today. I'm going to follow the 16-week program. When I when I give someone a 16-week program, they've been running a while. They already are actively running. Already have a good base. So, say if it starts at 30 miles and peaks at 48, I want to make sure they're already consistently running 25 miles a week or even 30 miles a week. That way, they can handle this this program. And I wrote programs based on the majority, the basically the majority of people have the time to follow it and will actually do the kind of mileage. Uh, you know, I back in the 70s and early early 80s, everyone did high mileage, and that's just the way it was. Right. I don't profess that now, and I know people wouldn't do it. So I kind of, you know, when I do a program that's going to end up in runner's world, I really do a program that I think will appeal to a mass majority of people. Right. Well, I, and I also see that you, you don't begin doing your uh, Yasso 800s until you're like uh, 10 weeks deep. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of those things to keep people injury-free. You know, I get so many injury questions and so many runners get injured because they just don't understand how to run easy on those quality days. It's on those, re- I'm sorry, on the recovery days. It's so counterintuitive to to have people think if you run slower, you will run faster. But it's the honest to God's truth. You've got to run slower on those easy days, on those recovery days, which will allow you to run faster on those quality days, those 800s and you know long runs I consider a quality day. Uh, but you have to allow your body to recover. So, And that's why I wouldn't start sending people to track to their own week 10 because I just don't want them to get injured 
if you don't get to the starting line, you can't do anything in the race. So, you know, I'm all about getting people out there. And, and I always tell people, you know, tweak these programs based on what you, what you have time to do and what you know your body can handle. What, what, what I do different, um, that I think different than a lot of training programs, is I never speak of mileage unless it's a time trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, um, a volume-based coach. So in other words, it's, it's a function of how much time you're planning to commit yep. to, to the week as opposed to how many miles you're going to commit to the week. And there's a big yeah. difference between those two paradigms. Yeah, I like that mindset. Yeah, and well, so at the end of the day, uh, the, the more time you spend training, the more volume in your running miles you'll uh, eventually create as your skills improve and your, and your pace improves. Yeah. So I, you can end up covering a lot more miles, but at the end of the day, I mean, if I if I take uh, an elite runner and say I want you to run five hours a week, and take a novice runner and run five hours a week, the difference could be about fifty percent difference in the in the actual volume and miles. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, it makes sense to me, and I agree with that mindset. I totally agree with your thinking because I, I, you know. If you get to work with people hands-on, it's a little bit easier to follow that program versus printing something in a magazine. Or yeah. That. Well, yeah. the cool thing about uh, what we can do today is that because through these different tools, we, we're able to gather these metrics. And so I have clients I work with in different parts of the world that, you know, I, I'm looking at their information. I, I'll pull it up on Training Peaks, and I could see what their distance was. I could see changes in elevation. I could see what their pace looked like. I could see what it cost them to do it. I know how many calories they expended relative to what they've done. And it just really gives you a, a, a kind of a bird's eye view of, of what actually is going on. And then you become to be more intuitive then because things change, as you know. I mean, you might set out to do 50 miles one week, and it may not be the best week to do it. Might might be you'd probably be better suited to do 40, right? Right, yeah. I mean, you're using today's technology to your advantage and that's what I love because uh, you know I, I see so many people use it to their disadvantage they're just a they're just attached to their their watch you know just because their watch loads everything up to Facebook and they want everyone to know exactly what they're doing and that's not what it's meant to be you know you, you, you use this data to learn not just to uh, post stuff on Facebook and things like that yeah you know and I found out about that uh, that whole social media tied to your training by accident. Yeah. Uh, I was actually riding my bike one day, and I, I, I'm sponsored by Mio, and I was using, the, they have a thing called the Mio Fuse, which is it's just a strap. But it sends the data to your iPhone, which, which I carry with me, and that's how I collect all the metrics. Apparently, the, 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 the app I was using was sending my, my workout real-time up to to Facebook or someplace like that. And um, there's people can chime in. So you, <laughs> I'm riding along and all of a sudden I hear this voice come over my, you know, cause I'm listening to music and yeah. you know, I got my earphones on and, and I hear this. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> and I'm going, what the hell was that? <laughs> and, and I, you know, and I, you know, I never put it together. And then, you know, a little later on I get another, Oh Yeah. And apparently that's uh, that's a trigger. Someone you know that's that's their you know giving you a little kudos for your work. I love it because they see what you're doing, right? <laughs> and I thought this is a little intrusive. You know, I I I don't know that I want someone to see whether I was slowing down, speeding up, or how far I went. Yeah, I, I'm with you. <laughs> so I actually quit using that app. By the way, I yeah. I don't really care to have someone see me not have a great day or or expect me to produce greater and greater work. So yeah. I don't do that anymore. But anyway, it's, it's, it's just interesting how the technologies come about. It absolutely is, uh, it changes the, the landscape of training and, and how you can interface with people as a coach. So I, I, I really like the, the whole concepts. Yeah. And Richard, one thing I want to mention that, you know, when we were together, I really loved you kept using that word efficiency. Uh, to, to runners, and I really love that because it is so true. The more more efficient you are, the better you're going to run. But you have to work on that efficiency. Absolutely, and I'll tell you what. Um, you got to figure it out, and you just can't. You know, this is there is a lot of simplistic parts of running. You know, it's not really technical in the big picture, 
but that doesn't mean that you cannot, you know, do things on your running form and uh, your foot plan and certain things that absolutely make you more efficient, which absolutely is going to make you run faster. Well, I'll tell you the the thing that I've been quoting lately that I love, and this is a scientific research that was conducted, I think, at the University of Wisconsin, where they identified that by bringing your cadence up by 5%, there's a reduction in the amount of stress that you're going to receive at the ankle, knee, and hip by 20%. And if you reduce it, if you increase your cadence by 10%, you'll reduce the stress on those joints by 36%. And what it boils down to is most runners that overstride tend to run at about 160 strides per minute. Mm-hmm. So that that 10% reduction really equates to a little shy of uh, 180 strides per minute, which is considered to be the holy grail of running uh, mechanics. Yeah. But they've proven that you know through through all the the the, the uh, kinematics that are associated with making that change that you actually can reduce the stress on your body by 36%, which is, to me, absolutely massive. Right. If you didn't do anything other than be able to reduce the amount of stress your body faces by 36%, just think about the amount of volume you could produce or the intensity you could produce in your training. Yeah, oh, I totally agree. And then, and I, you know, one thing I always profess to people that I coach is if you can stay injury-free, and just train consistently for a long period of time, that's when you're going to hit these ultimate times that you want to hit in the marathon and half marathon. You have to stay injury-free. And that's exactly what you were talking about. I mean, you're running efficient, improving that cadence, which makes you run faster, but then also is less stressful on your joints. You're going to stay injury-free, and then you're really going to improve. You know, it's interesting because I had this conversation with Michael Johnson last week. You know, the uh, the gold medalist in the Olympics for the four hundred and the two hundred and the three hundred. And you know, you know, you know, you've been around this, and you know, you know, he he's he's famed for his odd running style. Yeah. And he defended that, like like there was no tomorrow. He said, you know, well, you know, just because I'm upright, just because my cadence is, uh, you know, fast and that doesn't mean I wasn't being efficient. He goes, and, you know, everybody that's looked at it is, is suggested to me that the way I did what I did, the way I do that, that I do, uh, I find efficiency in it. And he stood by it. And, and I, 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 I would try to propose the idea. Of, I said, well, it becomes a function of inertia, Michael. You know this. I said, if you, if you were to lean into the wind a little bit, who's to suggest that you might not have even a better time? Who's to suggest that you may not have lost your record to Usain Bolt? <laughs> and uh, you know he he was not going to he's not going to hear it. He said no. Uh, what I was doing was working for me, and and you know would I would I recommend that someone else try it? No, but where I'm concerned, it worked for me. And yep. I I just to be honest with you, and I didn't say it to him, but you know if he's listening to this, he's probably going to call me. But I just think he's a freak of nature. You know he's been he's been fast at everything he's done since he was five years old right. he's never yeah. lost uh you know he, he was the fastest kid playing soccer fastest kid playing basketball fastest kid in every sport he 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 participated in and so it almost seemed like he was teflon no matter what he does he he was able to, to do it you know so yeah. it's a different story in his book you know he was he was uh he was a master of what he believed so when he believed in his stride and his posture and his workouts, I mean, he stood by it, and he mastered it, and he worked incredibly hard at it, and obviously he was athletically talented. Right. Well, and but, you know, most folk, most common folk uh, benefit by making little adjustments to the way they move through space, and, and as you suggested, and it was a very, very good point, I might add, is that the, the barrier to performance in running a marathon is volume. Yeah. You get to a place where you find this break point, and we all have one. It yeah. becomes a function of your strength-to-weight ratio. And when you start to get beyond that strength-to-weight ratio, you break down. Yeah. And so you either get stronger, you get lighter, or you become more efficient. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise you, know, it, you know, when someone tells me, 
what their finish time was, and I ask them how many uh, miles a week they were running in their peak, and they come back with 25 or 30 miles, there's almost nothing else to be said. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, for whatever it's worth. But well, anyway. We, in the old days, we talked about redlining it. You, you took it to that red line, but you didn't pass that red line because on the other side of that red line was injury and also, or just too much volume where it had a negative effect. So you pushed it to that red line without going over that red line. You know, state injury free. That was uh we used that, that term red redlining it back in the seventies and eighties. Right. So let's talk about your book. My sure. Life on the Run. My Life on the Run. Um yeah. that's it's so weird to have a memoir out there, you know. It's something I never thought I would do, never really wanted to do. I did it because the running community asked me to do it. And, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of talks at races all over the country, and people would say out there, oh, you know, you're a great speaker, and tell your story, we, you know, we want to buy your book. And I would say, I don't, I don't have a book to buy. And, uh, you know, working for a publishing company at Rodale that publishes Runner's World, uh, made sense to do my book and the uh, running community asking me to do it, so I did it. And, but the only way to do a memoir, you got to tell all the stories, so there's... My early chapters are all about every failure I had in life before I ever had any successes because I had a heck of a lot of failures earlier in my life. But I was able to turn my life around and have a lot of successes in the long run. So it's been... Uh, That's all that matters. Yeah, and when I get... You know, I have people come up to me all the time or send me emails or I see them in person and they're inspired by my book and, you know... I'll, pretty shy guy in the big picture. I don't, I don't know what I did that inspires them, but I'm just glad I inspire them. So I, you know, uh, I didn't think all that would happen. So in hindsight, I'm really happy I did it. And, uh, you know, my story's out there. And it's, uh, it's a crazy read. You know, I've done a lot of crazy races in there and my messed up childhood and all that stuff. And, uh, but in the end, it's, 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 I look at it as a, a running story, not so much a Bart Yasov story, the power of running, what running could do for a person who was kind of lost in the alcohol drug world and turned it around and then ended up being successful in the professional world through running. And you know, it's, been a, it's been a fun journey. Well, Bart, look, I, again, I said it early, but I'm going to say it again. I, I'm glad meeting you. And uh... Same here, buddy. I'm glad our has crossed. Yeah, and I, I, I'm sure they will cross again. I, I look forward to having a chance to spend a little more quality time with you, and I'm sure that um, there's more chapters to be added to that that memoir soon. Yeah, I got you, Richard. And yeah, and I got to personally thank you for what you're doing for athletes. You know, I, I you got that mindset of you know that most of us don't have. You really can look at the big picture, not just going to the track, not just doing long runs. You you look at everything that physically makes up a runner and there is more to just the running i mean how you live your life plays a big role in how you become a good runner and i you know you i can i could tell right away when you were doing the drills you were doing on the on the spartan crews that you really have a big picture outlook on this and i really uh i admire it and uh appreciate what you're doing for our sport well bart thank you so much for that compliment um I'll probably play that back to myself about 50 or 60 times this afternoon. I'm not every word of it, buddy. <laughs> Listen, thanks for coming on the show with me, Bart. All right, Richard. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Bart. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.